right, guys. Hey, open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 4 as we get started tonight. One time in kindergarten, um, I'm notorious for having a terrible memory, like a super terrible memory. Like every morning I walk out of my house, I always forget keys, wallet, you know, or a jacket or something like that. Like my wife doesn't even lock the door when I leave because for the most part, I usually come back within like two minutes, you know, to to, to grab it. Um, And that isn't something that's a recent thing. Um, It's something that's been true of me ever since I was little. One time in kindergarten, I I continued to forget every time it was show and tell day. I don't know if you, if you, you know, in kindergarten, you guys had show and tell. You'd bring some item from your house and you would show your friends, maybe a toy, maybe it's a letter from your grandma, maybe it's your favorite pair of, you know, sneakers, your you know, favorite deep, whatever. You'd, you'd bring your, your thing and then you would, you'd all sit in a circle and everyone would have their thing and then they would show their thing and then they'd talk about that thing that they have. And it was always something, you know, as a kindergartner, it was like, just, it, we did it like once a month, so it was like a big deal we made. And I, always forgot when show and tell day was. And finally, after forgetting it for like four months in a row, I decide, I walked into school one day, and I'm like, all right, school today, you know, and I saw my buddy Elon, he was my, my, my kindergarten pal, and I'm like, what's up, Elon? Because um, that's how kindergartner vernacular is, you know? I'm like, hey, what's hanging, man? Like, how we doing? And so he's like, yo, Dana, what's up? And I'm like, whoa, you've got that cool toy. Where'd you bring get that toy from? We're not supposed to have toys here generally. And he goes, it's show and tell day. And I went, no forgot again. But this time, I wasn't going to have it. I was determined to get my show and tell toy. So what I did is I said, I forgot. And I just got into school. And so I turned around and I walked back out the gate of my kindergarten. Passed, and I was confident. You know, I wasn't trying to be sneaky. I was just like, I was, didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And so there was a teacher there, like welcoming student and supposed to like keep the kids in. But apparently I had such a confident strut that she's like, oh, obviously this young child is, you know, with a parent or has some kind of business to do. So she just pushed aside and I just walked on past her and I walked home. As a kindergartner, I was five years old and I walked home about four miles back to my house and that face that you guys just made was the face of my father when I come strolling in the house. He's there, cup of coffee on the counter. I just dropped off at kindergarten. He's chilling, doing some bills or something. And he just hears, he had the door open. We're at Beach Town, so it's always sunny and the, there's an ocean breeze coming in. So he had the door open. He's sitting at the counter in the kitchen. And I just remember strolling on in. And he heard me before he saw me because he heard, I, I lived on a hill that was pretty high. And I had been walking up that hill with my little kindergarten legs all by myself took me about an hour to get back home. And I walk in and he heard me because I was like, (sighs) as I walk, as I walk in the door and he, and I just, I'll remember this picture in my mind, even it's one of my earliest memories. He was at the counter right here. The front door is down here, down the hallway, probably about where that that door is here. And and he's in the counter, but he has to, you have to lean back to see down the hallway to the front door. And I just, (sighs) and so I'm walking in and I just have this picture in my head. I go, leans back in his chair and goes, what? <laughs> like, that's all he could say is what? He comes and he gets outside. He's like, Dana, what's up? I'm like, and I just, I, again, don't think I'm doing anything wrong. I'm like, hey, dad, forgot my dinosaur. <laughs> and I go rolling in because my triceratops was what I had lined up to show everybody at show and tell. And he goes outside. He's looking for a teacher. He's looking for some kind of adult supervisor. And he goes, hey, hey buddy, how'd, how'd you get here? Did someone drop you off? Like, what's going on? Are you sick? What's going on? He goes, oh, no, I just walked here. And I could see the parental rage in his face to know that the school had allowed a kindergartner to go AWOL, right? And just go like, just, and I remember he, and he was good to me because he didn't know I didn't know any. So he's like, okay, get your triceratops. Let's, let's go down. He just, and I remember driving down and I remember these two things. The first thing is when I got there, the teacher looked like death warmed over because she realized she lost one of us. (laughs) 
she realized like, uh-oh, Dana's, and then she sees me and she's like, oh my gosh, yeah, okay, you know, you hear this and that. And he takes her into the other room and they have adult conversation, you know, over, and I'm like, okay, whatever. And so I sit down and I've got my triceratops and I'm like, hey, when show and tell? And this is the second thing I remember Elon said, we just finished it. Oh, to this day, it breaks my heart. Uh, <laughs> um, but when I think about show and tell, I think about that story, but I, I just think about why we do things like show and tell, Right? Why do we have things like show and tell? Because we understand that in order to really know something about somebody, and really to know even about an item, we not only need to hear about it, but we also need to what? See it. You see, for you and I, when it comes to us learning things, hearing something is usually a first step, an important step, a crucial step, But when it comes to truths that will make their home in our heart, we not only need to hear these truths, we also need to see them. So when you think about show and tell, we do show and tell because we need to not only hear, but we need to see. And I want to apply that principle to what we talked about this morning. Jesus Christ is the supreme treasure of the universe. I think as you read scripture, you'll understand that. As you hear biblical preaching, you're going to hear that. You're going to sing that. You're going to pray that. But if we want that truth to make its home in our heart, we need to not only hear that Jesus is the supreme treasure, you and I need to see it as well. You see, now one way we see it is we see it by looking into the face of Christ in the scriptures. The more we see of his character, the more we see of his goodness, you know, where we just become captured by, by the beauty of his glory by reading scriptures. That's one way that we come to see Christ's worth, but another crucial way that I think you and I can come to not only say, and I was talking with, I think, one of you guys uh, this morning, we were talking about how, how easy it is to, to know something up here, but not to experience it here, right? Like my house, I just bought a new a house, it's a, it's a new house to me, but it's a very old house, and it's a very fixer-upper house, and like every pipe in the house is clogged, right? Sink clog, and so I'm just like, you know, just opening up pipes and things, but For you and I, when it comes to theology, the pipes often get clogged, do they not? We learn something up here, and on the way down to our heart, there's something that's clogged. And it takes work to get it down into the depths of our heart. And so one of the things that we need to do is we need to take this truth that Jesus is the supreme treasure of the universe, thing that I think every single one of us in here may say, I agree with that, or that. We need to get it here, and we need to get it down the depths of our heart. So what I want to do tonight, on the first night we talked about the idols that we worship, the counterfeit gods that promise satisfaction but can't give it because they're not the infinite good God. This morning we talked about Christ as the infinite treasure. We were created, saved, and we look forward to the day where we will be able to fully satisfy our hearts in him without sin. The idols we worship, the Christ who's the supreme treasure in tonight. I'm going to call this sermon the picture that we need. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look into scripture and we're going to look at a picture of someone who is savoring Christ as the supreme treasure. And we're going to see what that does in his life. Okay, so this is the picture that we need. And it's going to be um, fairly simple, but I have a uh, a lot of good pictures to give us. And so... I hope it's a blessing. Let's pray that the Lord would open our eyes. Father, I do pray for your help right now that as I speak, Lord, that all of us in this room would see the treasure that Christ is. Lord, I pray that you'd clear the pipes from our head to our heart. I pray that we would not only love the truth, but we would, we would not only learn the truth, but that we love the truth truly tonight, that our heads would not only be informed, but our hearts would be pierced. And Lord, that can only happen by your Spirit's work. And so I pray in Spirit of God that you would do a work in our hearts. May the imperishable seed of your word be planted. And may fruit be born. I pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. And so Philippians is where we're going to be. Philippians chapter 4. And you'll see that a lot of you are probably very familiar with the the key verse 
of this passage tonight. Philippians is a very interesting book. It's called, it's called one of Paul's prison letters because he wrote it in prison uh, to the church in Philippi. And uh, you can see when Paul first visited and planted the church of Philippi in Acts chapter 16, it's quite the story. Uh, but the church of Philippi always held a very special place in Paul's life because they were one of the churches that was active in supporting his missionary ministry. They would financially support him. They would prayerfully support him. Whenever he would come to Philippi, they'd open their homes and their hearts to him. And so for the book of Philippians um, is actually written from Paul as a, as a thank you letter to the Philippians for the care that they gave him while he was in prison. So they sent him a... a, a um, uh, Epaphrodites, one of their, their church members, and they sent him with supplies to help Paul out. And I think that those were uh, supplies of encouragement, supplies of uh, refreshment, of, of, you know, probably food, probably clothing, probably, you know, things like that to help his stay as he's imprisoned for the gospel. And so he writes the letter of Philippians as a thank you note, as a response. And so it's unique in the Bible for that reason. And one of the things that people who know about the book of Philippians, one of the key characteristics is it's often called the, the, the letter of joy. Which is phenomenal when you know that it was written from prison. Right, the letter of joy. And in Philippians chapter four is where we're gonna be tonight. And um, we're going to see in Philippians chapter four Paul savoring the treasure of Christ even as he's in prison. So let's just look real quickly. Let's look at in, in verse 10 of chapter four. We could see Paul thanking the Philippians for the gift they gave him. He says this, I rejoiced, there's that joy theme, in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. I know you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. So here we see Paul thanking them. He goes, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that your concern for me has been revived. Thank you for your help. I know that you've always been concerned for me, but you haven't had a chance to show it. And so he receives this gift. Epaphroditus comes and encourages him and prays for him and, and is with him in prison. And he just says, I just want to thank you for your concern for me, Philippians. But then in verse 11, he goes further and he says this, not that I am speaking of being in need. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul is saying, hey, thank you for helping me in my time of need. But then he kind of pushes the pastoral brakes and he goes, I don't want to, I don't want to misunder, be misunderstood. Because he knows that he says, hey, thanks Philippians for when I was in need, you helped me. But he doesn't want the Philippians to have a picture of him in prison as if he is dying and wasting away and barely hanging on and he's miserable and that their help was something that brought him back to life. He wants them to A, hear his genuine heartfelt thanks, but B, he wants them to know that he was doing just fine in prison that he wasn't wasting away. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, losing his hope or his joy that he, in prison, though he appreciated their gift, he was being cared for. Fine. And so he goes, don't misunderstand me. It's not that I was in need. And now no, notice what he says next. He wants to tell them something that he's learned. I'm not speaking of being in need. Because, here's the reason why he doesn't have this, this kind of need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So Philippians, please know I love the gift that you gave me, but know that I have been content as I have been imprisoned. I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. He goes further and he says this I know or sorry uh, yeah verse 12 I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. Philippians, I want you to know I have learned to be content in every situation and I've learned, notice the, the words he says, in any circumstance that the Lord brings me in, whether I'm in palace, in a palace or in a prison, whether I am satisfied with a full belly or I am starving with an empty belly, whether I am bone-chilling cold 
with no jacket to call my own or next to a warm fire with warm friends and a warm cup of coffee. I know the secret to being content. Now, Paul here summarizes when he talks about abundance and, you know, nothing high and low. That's a very summary way to describe the things he's experienced, is it not? If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, just saying, oh, he knows how to be hungry and how not to be hungry, how to be cold and how to be warm, you know that that is a gross understatement of the experiences that he had as a missionary for Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gets a little bit more detailed about the experiences the Lord has brought him through as a missionary. Listen closely to these words. And even if you know this passage, don't be like, oh yeah, yeah I know, shipwrecked, all that kind of whipped a bunch of times. When I say these things, when I read these things, I want you to visualize it in your head, Paul experiencing these things. I want you to visualize what it would be if you experienced these things. Okay, so I want you to use your imaginations, think pictures of these things. Here's Paul's experience as a believer, his times of plenty and of, of, of pain. He says this, this first line alone. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes minus one as they whipped him with a cat of nine tails 39 times on five separate occasions. What's the math on that? What's five times 39? It's too many is what it is. What it is. I don't know what that math is, but 100 and let's go with that, okay? That's, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, that's good. So 100, he had a whip lashed across his back at least 195 times. He goes further. That alone would be quite the reputation, right? The, the record. Three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned. Three times, three times, I was shipwrecked. A night in a day, I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul, this is, imagine that kind of suffering. Like I went from the cafeteria to the bathroom without a jacket, right, and by the time I got back, I'm like, I'm almost dead, right? Like, I, I just felt, I was so, and I just, I imagine what Paul must have endured. Imagine if you took Paul to the beach. It'd be a fun beach trip. You get to the beach, you get your chairs down, you put your blankets down, you get the beach chair out for him, you got an umbrella, you, you know, he's got some board shorts on, you're gonna teach Paul how to surf. And he takes his shirt off and you look at his back. You look at the back of a man who knows what suffering is. So in Philippians, he's saying, Philippians, I thank you for your gift, but I want you to know though I appreciate your gift, I accept your gift, I receive your gift, Jesus hasn't left me hanging. I've learned the secret to be content in the greatest and at the whipping block, in a palace and a prison. Feel that, friends. These aren't idle words. And so we have to ask this question. Paul says here, I have learned the secret to be content in any and every circumstance. Here's the question you need to ask as a, as a good Bible reader. Paul, what's the secret? <laughs> Paul, I gotta know the secret because Paul, if I'm telling you the truth, a lot of us have everything our hearts ever wanted and accept contentment. And so if you know how to, have, how to have contentment when you have all the things that you want and when you don't have the things that you want, I wanna know that secret, Paul. I mean, I live in Orange County. It's a place of, of abundance. 
And it's one of the craziest places in the world because you have people that have everything they want and one of the things that is rare in Southern California is contentment. And so what's the secret? And thankfully he gives us the secret. And it's not the things the world would say because the world would say, oh, contentment, Paul probably has a lot of material possessions. Or Paul probably has you know, good health. Or he probably has good family and good friends. He probably has a positive, affirming attitude, right? Those are the things that we think are the secret to contentment, but those aren't Paul's answer. His answer is right here in verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives or who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you've heard that verse, have you not? And usually that verse is used in what kind of context? Usually sports, right? At one time when I was a young believer, I just was a brand new believer, I was a wrestler in high school, okay? So I went into the wrestling match and um, I had this guy, he was from Calvary Chapel, right? Which is a very good wrestling team. It's a private school. And so this guy I think was a, a, a believer and he had Philippians 4.13 tattooed on his arm. I, I was standing there because when you have to wrestle, you have to go out to the mats. And so you're kind of waiting there with the guy you're about to wrestle and you're kind of, you're doing this, you're looking nervous. You don't want to look at the guy every time you like, you know, do this. And, you know, and you're kind of, you know, just trying to get ready for the match. It's a very nerve wracking time. And I just remember I'm sitting there and I look at his arm and it's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I thought, there's no way I can win this match. <laughs> this guy's got Jesus on his side. <laughs> this guy's got Jesus. I wish I had that. I mean, I love Jesus too, but I didn't have a tattoo. So I think Jesus, if he's going to help anyone win, it's going to be the guy with a tattoo that says, Jesus can help me win because it would look bad if this guy lost. And he's like, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then he loses. That would be a bad deal. I'm looking at this guy's arm. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be a rough match, right? And I get out there and I tear him to shreds. And I get up. And at that moment, I was conflicted in soul. I was like, did I just beat Jesus? <laughs> should I have lost to this guy so that the witness of the power of Christ would not be diminished in the eyes of the non-believers in this stadium? Like, I was like, what's going on? What does that verse mean? Because obviously it doesn't mean that you can achieve any accomplishment because I just beat you, bro. What's going on? Now, thankfully, the power and glory of Jesus was not diminished by this guy's inability to beat me on the mat because this passage has nothing to do with Jesus helping us accomplish achievements. It has nothing to do with you getting a 4.0 GPA. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has nothing to do with you winning a wrestling match or a championship uh, or getting a scholarship or, or you want to get a certain job or you want to finish a certain project. This verse has nothing to do with Jesus being your, your helpmate in helping you accomplish whatever you put your mind to. It's not what this is about. What's the context of this passage? We've been talking about it. Contentment. When Paul says, I can do all things... I can suffer and I can be satisfied. I can be in, in, in a place of pleasure and I can be in a place of pain. I can do all things with contentment, with God honoring joyful contentment. How can he do it? Through Christ who strengthens me. For Paul, the secret to contentment was being strengthened by the glory of Jesus Christ. Strengthened by the sweetness and the strength of his Savior. You see, when the, and this is what's amazing, is that though this passage is not about you achieving any accomplishment, instead this passage is about you being content in any circumstance. And my friends, that is a far better truth than Jesus just being there to help you achieve any accomplishment. Because accomplishments will come and go. We'll forget about them. But you know what this life is going to definitely throw at you? Soul-crushing times of hardship. And in those times, you don't just need a buddy to help you achieve what you put your mind to. You need a Savior who will fill your heart with joy. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, for Paul... When the world gets all that it wants, when the world has everything it wants, money, fame, it's miserable. But when the world takes everything away from Paul, he's joyful. 
Why? Because he has Christ, and if he has Christ, then he has all the riches of God. Here's a question we want to ask is, how can this be? How is it that Christ can truly bring contentment to Paul in any and every circumstance? And just by way of review, because we've talked about it last night, we've talked about it this morning, but just by way of review, let me give you five simple reasons why Christ can make us content in any and every situation. And so if you'd like to write things down, five quick things, we'll go through these quickly. Number one, Christ can strengthen us to contentment, to God-honoring contentment in any situation because we were made to delight in Christ. We were made to delight in him. Like we talked about this morning, uh, Spurgeon says the human heart is a triangle only to be filled with the triune God. And so when our hearts are filled with Christ, we are experiencing the design of our creation. We're like, we're like you know, a, a, a child's toy with the right batteries inside. It's what works. It's the right gasoline for our soul. It's the right food for our soul. We have a triangle hole in our heart and, G, and the triune God fills it perfectly. And so when we are content in Christ, we are experiencing what we were created to experience. The things of this world do not content us lastingly because we were not made to be contented by them. Number two, we can be content in Christ in all situations because Jesus is sweeter than suffering is bitter. Jesus is sweeter than suffering is bitter. You see, the world can take our jobs, our money, our freedom, our family, our health, and our life, but the world cannot, or sorry, um, that's the wrong note. The bitterness of suffering cannot overcome the sweetness of Christ for those who know him. And when Paul planted the church in Ephesus, is in Acts chapter 16, it's a crazy story. He comes to this place, he saves this girl from slavery to demons, right? She's following him around, yelling all these crazy things, and, you know, it's kind of freaking people out. So Paul, like, turns around, and he's like, hey, demon, get out of this girl. And the demon gets out, and then the guys get really upset because that girl was their slave, and her magic tricks kind of brought them a lot of money. So then they bring Paul and Silas before the governor. They're like, these guys are making a ruckus. And then they go, all right, whatever. And so they beat them, and they whip them, right? Just no questions asked, whatever. And they throw them into prison. And so Paul and Silas are in prison with, again, this is bloody back, right? Whipped, shackled in the middle of the prison in a dungeon. It's probably cold. It's probably dark. They probably didn't have the greatest food or the most comfy couches. He's sitting there. And when I would be saying, why God? I would be miserable. I would be complaining. Do you remember what Paul and Silas are doing in the middle of night? They're singing. <laughs> Come on. They're singing. Like, how did they start that? Did they just, just Paul just start doing it? Silas is like, yeah, let's start singing. Or was it like, hey, you know what's a good thing to do right now, Silas? Like, let's sing. It seems appropriate, right? They just start singing. Could you imagine what the other prisoners are thinking at that moment? Why was he singing? Because Christ was sweeter than his suffering at that point was bitter. Yeah, his back was ripped open. He was wrongfully thrown in prison. I no, no doubt it was upsetting to Paul but he was still savoring the sweetness of Christ. And he goes, you know what? It's a good time to sing to Jesus right now. Three, Jesus can give contentment in all situations because he cannot be taken away from us. Jesus cannot be taken away. The world can take our jobs, our money, our freedom, our families, our health, our life, but what the world can never rip out of the hand of a believer is their savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries, uh, famous missionary, um, his wife wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor. Uh, back in, I think, the 60s, they went down to this unreached people group down in South America. And this, there's a certain tribe that never got reached, and they were known to be a violent tribe. And so he and four other missionaries flew in their plane, and they would shout. They learned bits of their language to shout, we are friends, we come in peace. And they landed the plane, and the tribe actually started coming to them and, you know, poking their heads out. There's a whole movie called The End of the Spirit. It, it, it's, it's the story. It's very well done. And Jim Elliott... <laughs> it is a violent tribe. They put their life on risk and they make contact with the tribe. They actually take one of the Indians up in the plane. He loses his mind. He's like, what's going on? You know, and they're, so then they come back in. They're thinking, we've got contact with them. We can start sharing the gospel with these people. They come back and on their second round, the people come out not with smiles, but with spears and they kill all four of the missionaries. They kill them. 
You see, before Jim Elliott actually went out on, on that trip to go make contact with the villagers, when, uh, I think it was the pilot's son, Nate Saint, his son said, Dad, you forgot your gun. He comes running out of the house. You forgot your gun. And he says, I'm not bringing the gun. He goes, Dad, this is a violent tribe. Like, you need the gun. And he says, I don't need the gun. And he looked at his son. And he says, son, I'm ready to die. They're not. Jim Elliott in his journal uh, his journals are published and he has this line that I just think is so perfect for this point about Christ not being able to be taken away from us. He says this, consider him no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Consider him no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why can Christ bring us contentment in every circumstance? Because we can't lose him. Even when all else fades, He's there. Fourth, not only can we have Jesus never taken away from us, but that's more because Jesus himself will never leave us. We can be content with Christ in every situation because Jesus will never leave us. Hebrews 13.5 connects this idea with the presence of Christ and our contentment. Listen to what it says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, the Christian is not enslaved to money because they have Jesus Christ who never leaves us. And number five, now this is important. Those things show us that Jesus is sweet and Jesus is stable so we can be content in any circumstance but just knowing that Jesus is sweet and Jesus is stable won't necessarily help us keep our sanity in moments of tremendous suffering. You see, if I'm, if I'm at the dinner table with my wife and my kids and some madman comes busting into my house and he guns down my family in front of me in cold blood and shoots me and leaves me you know, to die on the ground, but I don't die, and I watch my daughters and my wife murdered in cold blood in front of me, at that moment, I need something more than the sweetness of Jesus Christ to get me through. I need something more than the tender friendship of Christ to get me through a tragedy and suffering like that. At that moment, I need to understand that this situation is not outside of the control of Jesus Christ and that he is able to work all things for my good, things that are great and glorious and even things that I look at and can make no sense of and have no idea how this could possibly turn to good because if Jesus is not strong to control the evil of this world, then I will lose my mind when I hit tragedy because I think that it may be outside of the control of God. And so fifth, we can have contentment in Jesus Christ because Jesus is in control. He is the sovereign savior who is in control in both the times of good and the times of bad. You know the verse most likely, Romans 8.28 says it, says it this way. It says, Actually, before we say Romans 8, 28, I apologize. In the book of Philippians, we see that Paul has this trust in the sovereignty of Christ. In, in chapter one, verse 12, Paul says this to the Philippians. He goes, Philippians, I'm in jail, I'm in prison, but I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, prison, imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. He goes, guys, it's actually a good thing that I'm in prison because I'm here. Yeah, I'm chained up, but guess who's chained up with me? The guards. And they have to hear me talk to him about Jesus, right? And so could you imagine he's there with the guards and the guy, hey, what's your name? You know, I'm Paul, you know, has, uh, have you heard about Jesus? No? Well, sit down. You know, and he's, he's like, he's, they're chained to me. They can't run away. And so he goes, I'm telling him about Jesus. And he's like, the whole Roman guard in this palace has heard about the gospel. And the other believers in this area are being strengthened to know that the gospel is being preached from inside the bars, it's amazing that the, that the one who is in chains in this jail is the freest of all. And so he sees his imprisonment not as some unfortunate circumstance that Jesus is like, oh, I'm really sorry, Paul. I, I'll try and get you out, buddy. Jesus says, I'm a missionary to this prison. I've been sent to this prison by Jesus. You're not imprisoning me. Jesus is. And it's not to harm me, but it's to help you guys. What an amazing outlook to have. They try and beat Paul down and he knows that Jesus is in control. 
in Philippians 1.29, he actually says this to the Philippians. He says, Philippians, it has been granted to you for the sake of Jesus that you should not only believe in him. So God has given you faith in Jesus. He's the one that's called you to trust in Jesus. God has granted you belief in Jesus, but he's not only granted you that. It says this, God has also granted you to suffer for his sake. So Paul's telling the Philippians, Philippians, you're suffering, but guess what? That is suffering that has come to you by the loving hands of God, and he is doing something in you and through you in your suffering. Christians can be content in times of tragedy or crisis because we know that Jesus is in control. Romans 8, 28. For we know that in all things, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose. Notice this. In all things, the good and the bad, God is working. It doesn't say God is responding like like it's kind of one big chess match, right? The world throws a tragedy our way and God's like, ooh, I didn't see that one coming. Let me see here. No, every time of satisfaction or every time of suffering is not, God's not reacting to the world. God is actually bringing you proactively through these things. He is working in you through the good and the bad things of this world. And it's for your ultimate good. Is it for your temporary good right now? Does this passage mean that God will never bring you into times of suffering? He will never bring you into times of discomfort? No. God works all things for your eternal good. He works all things in your life that you would be made more in the likeness of Jesus Christ and experience his joy. Now, this is very difficult when we think about really hard cases of suffering. You see, we can look at situations in this world and we, can, we will say, you'll hear this a lot, I don't know how any good can come out of this. Have you heard that a lot? Maybe you've said that a lot. And that's a fair human thing because there's tragedies that happen in this world that we go, I have no idea what's, what's going on. So what's the Christian supposed to do when we are faced with immense tragedies before us? One time, my daughter Daisy, <laughs> she got constipated, Right? Now, this is tragic for two reasons. Number one, it was the first thing, first like kind of ailment that she ever experienced. So for her, the pain and the, you know, was the, it was like the first time she ever really experienced pain like that. And so she was tripping. And it was really painful. She hadn't pooped in like five days, right? Poor little thing. Like, and you touch, you know, and it was just firm and like, crap. Like, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dad jokes. Um, so that was one reason why it was hard. But here's the second reason is we were brand new parents and as brand new parents, you just think that you are like this close from killing your kid every five seconds, right? You just like, like brand new parenting is just one moment to the next of you thinking you've almost killed your child. Like that's just what it is. And so she starts getting constant. We're like, she hasn't pooped. I think she's gonna die. Like what's, what's going on? We and so we're freaking out. She's in pain, she's hurting and I will never forget this experience for the rest of my life. I brought, we brought her to the doctor Right? And we say, Doc, she's constipated. And he checks and he's like, boy, oh boy, she sure is, right? And so here's what he does. She comes into this place and she's holding on to me because it's a new place and she's, she's a year and like three months. So she kind of grabs onto me. She sees these weird people in weird clothes in this very awkward, weird smelling, you know, kind of place. We sit down in the lobby. We're kind of talking with her, playing with her. She's not feeling good, so she's not being very social. She's just kind of clinging to daddy. We go into the room where we're waiting for the doctor, even smaller room, even weirder. She holds on to me tighter. I can tell all she wants to do is go home and snuggle and just wait till it feels better. Now the doctor walks in. Stranger, doesn't know him. He comes in talking to us and she's just kind of looking at him. And he comes and he says, hey, can I hold? And when he puts his arms out, she goes and holds on to me as tightly, like digs her claws into me. And I'm just like, this is gonna be hard. So he goes, just sit her, on the, sit her on the bench. And so I pick her up and I go to sit her. And she's like, no, no, I don't want to sit. So I had to sit next to her. Like in a, and so he kind of like, hey, Daisy, you know, this and that. And he starts to kind of do his doctor things, poke and prod. And she's like, mm, like pushing him away, this and that. And he's like, I'm sorry, guys, but we're going to have to put her down on the table because I need to actually, you know, be able to check how bad it is and things. And so, well, she lay down and she wasn't having it. She, wasn't, she was about to jump back on me. And so she says, you're going to need to force your daughter down on the table so I can appropriately check her. And so me, my wife grabbed her legs and I grabbed her hands and she starts bawling, 
crying her eyes out. She's, she's tired, she couldn't sleep, she's uncomfortable, she's painful, and now her dad and her mom are putting her down on a cold, sterile table without a shirt on, and we're holding her hands down. She is struggling, she is screaming, she is crying. And I look, look, and then the doctor starts to push on all of the places that hurt her. And I am losing it as a father because I'm looking in the eyes of my daughter. And though she can't say this with her words, she, I see it with her eyes. She says, I thought you loved me. I could see it in her eyes. She's looking at me saying, I trusted you. I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. I, th I thought that you had my, my back and I'm just looking at her and I just want to just scream, this is for your good. This is for your good. I promise this isn't to hurt you. It's to help you. This is to heal you. It's for your good. I know you don't understand. From her perspective, she looks at her situation. She is, I'm not where I want to be. I don't feel like what I want to feel like. And now my dad is abandoning me, letting this mean man hurt me. She looks at her situation and she goes, there is no way anything good can come out of this situation. When you think about her perspective as a toddler, we understand, right? But all of us know, is there good that's going to come out of that situation? That entire situation is designed what? For her good. She doesn't understand it. If she still has nightmares about that event, she still doesn't understand why that whole event happened. But it makes sense that she doesn't understand because the child doesn't often understand the parent's intent because their mind isn't at the same place. Is it possible, friends, that in our times of suffering, when we're screaming, God, there's, po there's no possible way anything good can come out of this, is it, just, is it possible, is it possible that God's thoughts may be different than our thoughts? God may know a little bit more than you do. Is it possible that even tragic situations, God can work out for eternal good? Is it possible that once you get to heaven and you see that situation through God's eyes, you don't just say, oh, I understand now. You say, thank you, God. See, Paul can say, I've learned to be content in any and every situation because I know that the worst thing Jesus will ever do to me is whip me to heaven. It's the worst thing he'll ever do. Yeah, I might get a whip crack from now and, now and then, but it's always to just usher me forward toward, his, toward his, his blessings and his glory even more. And so Paul knew this truth that Spurgeon says, and this is for you. You're going to suffer. And I'm saying this to each and every one of you. If you don't get some kind of terminal sickness, someone in your family will. If you don't have an untimely death, someone close to you will. You're going to have suffering in this world and it's gonna crush you. You're gonna get punched in the soul in this world. And in those times, you need to know that our sovereign God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. My friends, when you cannot trace God's hand, you have to learn to trust God's heart. If God had sent his son Jesus Christ to endure our eternal hell upon himself that we may be saved and brought back to him, we can trust that he is going to work for our eternal good. We can trust he's not gonna forsake us. So this is Paul in, in, in his contentment. This is the secret to contentment. My friends, this is show and tell. And so I told you this morning, Jesus is the supreme treasure. Here's an example from our beloved brother Paul showing you that truth. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But let me give you two more pictures. These ones aren't from the Bible. These ones are from uh, actually present day. Anybody know who Joni Erickson Tata is? She spoke at my graduation commencement. Joni Erickson Tata is a beautiful young woman born a couple decades ago. And she was born in a family that loved the Lord. She was young. She was beautiful. She was athletic. She was a star athlete. Uh, she was a horseback rider. And when she was 19 years old, she fell off her horse, broke her spine, and became a quadriplegic. She has no control over any part of her body below her neck. At 19 years old. Joni Erickson Todd, I believe, is about now 70 years old. 
and she has lived a life on a wheelchair without the control of her hands. Um, she learned how to paint with her mouth, like with her teeth, and she paints beautiful paintings. But she loves the Lord, and she's written many books upon the topic of following Christ in suffering. <laughs> and if anyone has you know, the ability to do that, she's at least one of the candidates. And she wrote an article oh, just a little bit ago, and it was titled, When I Go to Heaven, I Hope I Can Bring My Wheelchair. And she writes this. I sure hope I can bring my wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and maybe put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I will stand next to my savior, holding his nail pierced hands. And I will look him in the eye and I will, I will say, thank you, Jesus. And he'll know what I mean by it because he knows me. He'll recognize from me the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings, and I will say to him, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we will have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. <laughs> but the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, Jesus, the stronger I discovered you to be. And it, I, it never would have happened I never would have understood how good you are had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. You see, she's able to look at the suffering in her life and not be bitter about it, not complain about it, not say, why God for it, but she's able to see that her life of suffering on that wheelchair was used by the Lord to bring her closer to him and see his glory and his goodness in such a way that she says, I hope I can bring my wheelchair to heaven and say, thank you, Jesus, for it. I've learned to be content in all situations. I have a friend, two friends. They're a married couple named Kurt and Allison. They have four beautiful children. They love the Lord. They're members of their church family. Uh, he teaches Bible studies and disciples young men. Come from a godly family, just beautiful, abundant, joyful Christian people who just cherish Jesus like no one's business. About eight months ago, six months ago, uh, they asked for prayer because their fourth child, little Quinny, was just, she had some bruising that wasn't going away and she had some things, and so they brought her to the doctor. And she got their, she's one years old. And their, their, their one-year-old daughter, Quinny, got diagnosed with leukemia. Like leukemia. She's one years old. Leukemia. Bring her to the hospital. She's one years old and she goes through chemotherapy. She had golden locks of just curly hair and all her hair is gone. She was this wonderful, just little pudge chublet, just like rolls everywhere, just like, you know, Thanksgiving morning kind of, you know, just like, and now she's, she's thin. She's lost a lot of weight because of the, the chemo, the poison that they're putting in her body to kill the cancer, it's, it's hurting her. And the thing that I'm marveling at, they're crying big tears, I promise you. They are grieving, they are hurting But you know what they're continuously doing? They're leaning on Jesus. They have a whole Facebook post, you know, it's called Quinny's Crew. They're giving people updates about Quinn in every single post. You know what, what two words happen in every single post? Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. God is so good. God is so gracious. Christ has been so kind. And they're not just putting on a mask and being like, everything's okay. When things are going rough and it's hard, they're like, we're struggling. We need some help. Like, they're not just putting on this mask being like, we're Christians. Everything's okay. But from the bottom of their heart, they too have learned the secret to be content in any and every situation. They can do all things through Christ who gives them strength. you're not a Christian in here. Do you have something like that? Is the thing that you're living your life for, is it as good as that? 
that if you lose a child to cancer, your world's not gonna end, that if you yourself get cancer or become a quadriplegic, that you can still have actual, true, unshakable joy. And I'm just gonna tell you right now, if you're not a Christian, you don't have that because there's only one person who is that, and it's Jesus. Please, friends, leave your stupid idols and trust in the risen Savior. There's no one as good as Jesus. For my believing friends, I just want you just to think about this. I love Josh, Psalm 23, right? Not Psalm 27, right? Psalm 23, you know, those, that first verse of Psalm 23, what is it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That sums up the secret to contentment, does it not? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's David saying that. David, the Lord, is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David, what about when your son's chasing after you and trying to kill you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David, what about when you're in the desert and you're like almost dying of starvation and in Latin exposed? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, well, Paul, what about you? You've gone through some pretty tough things. You know, you've been imprisoned. What about in prison, Paul? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Paul, what about those times you haven't been without food and your stomach is just gurgling, your body's eating itself? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Paul, what about the whips? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Joni, Joni Erickson Tata, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What about when you get paralyzed? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What about when it's all four of your appendages, all four of your limbs, you have no control of your body? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What about if it's your entire life? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Kurt and Allison, what about when your baby gets cancer? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see, Jesus is the supreme treasure and don't just hear that, friends, see that. See it in the lives of Paul, the life of Paul, the lives of these people that I've spoken to you, the lives of all of the faithful witnesses in all of the Bible. When you ask them this question, they will give you the same answer. What is it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not Friends, is that what you say? And if you don't, don't take this as, again, a guilt trip. Take this as an invitation to joy. Hear that Christ is the supreme treasure. See tonight that he is the supreme treasure. And I pray that you would taste yourself that he's the supreme treasure. Let's pray. Father.